Uh, one of the great post-resurrection narratives in Luke 24 as we meet uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So Luke 24, I'm reading from verse 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us! For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And open the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Well, good evening. Uh, let me add my welcome to Joel's. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Um, it's great to have you with us, especially if you're visiting. And um, we're going to look at that passage that's just been uh, read for us as we think about uh, the resurrection on this Easter Sunday. But let me pray for us first. Ask that God will help us as we work through this passage together and think hard uh, together. So please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, the freedom to gather like this, uh, to encourage one another, 
to open your word together. And we ask, Lord, that you might help us to grasp perhaps afresh uh, what you have done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, but perhaps to understand for the first time the incredible miracle uh, that took place that first Easter in terms of Jesus being raised to life. Help us to uh, come to your word with a willingness to consider what it is that you've done and how that impacts us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes things don't go according to plan. You know, we have an expectation of how something will unfold and then things just get turned on their head. About 12 months ago, my extended family uh, were planning to have a joint holiday to celebrate my mother's 70th birthday, but we couldn't get everyone to match their holidays. And we thought, well, we're going to have to plan, plan a bit further ahead. And so we decided we'd go for 2017 and we'd lock in the week before Easter. Um, and so we did so uh, with the added bonus that we'd now be able to celebrate uh, my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, uh, which takes place this month. And the plan was that we would go to Hamilton Island in the Sundays. That was until uh, March 28, nine days before we were due to fly out when, of course, Cyclone Debbie hit that part of the world. Winds reached 263 kilometres an hour and you know, the island there was battered for over 12 hours amongst many other places in that section of the coast. You know, It was a Category 4 cyclone and only once, um, as far as we know in records, have we had higher wind speeds uh, in Australia, and that was from Cyclone Yasi in 2011. And of course, if you've watched the TV, you would have seen the, the massive widespread damage throughout that area. And Hamilton Island really took the brunt of it. Um, you know, it's been described as a war zone in the aftermath. Um, trees were uprooted, roofs were torn off many of the buildings, uh, boats were picked up and just hurled onto the breakwater in the harbour. And it's estimated that it's going to take them uh, not only millions of dollars to fix things, but probably until August before they've actually improved and rectified all the facilities and got things back up to full capacity again. Now, our holiday was postponed as a result, and um, so things didn't unfold as we'd hoped. There was some disappointment in that, but at least we can reschedule. Uh, really, an idyllic holiday being postponed is a first world problem, isn't it? Um, for the people who lost their businesses and many of their houses, you know, this has been a tragic um, time for them. But of course, um, something worse could have befallen us, and that is we could have been there as the cyclone hit, as many of the guests found. Uh, many of them were there as things unfolded. And um, there was actually one group uh, that was reported in the paper where they were celebrating the mother's 70th birthday, as it turned out. There's a group of 11 or 12 of them. And they described huddling in the bathroom, waiting for the roof to be torn off. Uh, it wasn't quite what they'd anticipated, no doubt, um, but it's a holiday they're not going to forget soon. You see, in the encounter that we're considering tonight, there are two disciples of Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And for them, things had simply not unfolded as they had hoped. They had seen their good friend and their master Jesus crucified on Good Friday. In so doing, they were thrown into grief. Uh, but more than that, they had pinned their hopes on this one, that he was the promised Christ or Messiah, the anointed one of God, God's king that had been promised to the nation who would redeem people, who would save them. And so there is great disillusionment as a result of his death. There's now unbelief. Perhaps he wasn't the one. 
And so as we uh, enter into this um, section where these two confused disciples encounter the risen Jesus, um, they're really struggling with the hopelessness that death brings. And we get an insight as things unfold to the true hope that the resurrection of Jesus can bring to them and to us. So the big question I want us to consider tonight is how does Christ's resurrection bring hope? How can that bring hope to our world, to ourselves? That's our big question that we want to consider. And the first point as we uh, look at answering that is, firstly, it overcomes the hopelessness of death. Notice again uh, what is recorded in the opening verses of our section from verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. It's a really interesting introduction here because we see uh, the mindset of the disciples at this point. And it's helpful to backtrack for just a moment and consider what was going on just before this. In the opening 12 verses of this chapter, um, Easter Sunday had dawned. Some of the women who were part of the followers of Jesus had rushed down to the tomb uh, as daybreak took place. They had brought spices. They were going to further prepare and embalm the body that had been hastily placed in a tomb on Good Friday. But they discover the tomb is empty and they race back to the disciples who are sort of hiding back in the city of Jerusalem. And they tell them this amazing news. But rather than the disciples being convinced about this report and thinking perhaps Jesus has been raised to life, uh, they don't believe it. They largely reject the women's testimony. Only Peter, and we discover from another gospel, John, race down to check out whether it could be true. They get there and discover the empty tomb, as the women had said, but they walk away confused, not knowing what's happening. There's no faith. They're still lost in confusion and their disappointment and grief and disillusionment. And so as you come to this um, passage, as they're walking these two disciples amongst their group on the road to Emmaus, the purpose of this is to unfold, to open the eyes of these two disciples to see what has truly taken place. They're going to be shifted from this place of unbelief and disillusionment to renewed hope in Jesus. Well, coming back to our opening section from verse 13, did you notice there, uh, they're going along, it's the same day, it's Easter Sunday. Uh, all those events have taken place that morning with the women. And Jesus sidles up to them in verse 17, begins a conversation with them. But that body language in verse 17 is just so descriptive of how they're thinking, their emotions. You know, he asks them what they're discussing. They stand still. Their faces are downcast. Now, look, at one level, that's a natural response, isn't it, uh, for somebody who's grieving. If we, leave, if we lose somebody who's a close loved one, there's a numbness, uh, there's a, a just overcome, an overwhelming sense of grief and loss to begin with. But there are other feelings going on here beyond grief for these two disciples. So we get a sense that they really are disillusioned, that they really has, they have lost faith in Jesus, at least in him being God's Christ, the anointed one. Because we get it in the words that follow. 
not only is there the despondent body language, but there are their statements about what they think has happened. So notice from verse 19, um, Jesus asked them what they're thinking and suddenly they unburden their hearts on him. They unload their thinking, expressing their confusion to Christ. They say to him, you know, as he asks, what, is, what are these things that have happened? Well, he was a prophet, uh, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since this has taken place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now notice here they reveal this sense of hopelessness in the loss of Christ in his death. It just didn't seem to fit their conception of the Messiah. And so when they hear about the empty tomb, it doesn't bring renewed hope. It just brings further confusion. Presumably, they think the body's just been stolen. Somebody's just taken it away. This is just adding grief upon grief. And Christ's death, which they squarely lay at the feet of the religious leaders of their nation, they talk about the chief priests and the Jewish rulers seeing him executed. Well, that doesn't uh, bring any hope. They're completely in despair in verse 21. They simply say we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And so it's interesting as Jesus, the risen Christ, is standing next to them, albeit they, they can't recognize him. Here they are telling him, well, you know, we thought he was the Christ. And that, but, you know, really he's just a prophet. In verse 19, they describe him as a prophet. Certainly he's powerful in word and deed, but it seems they've revised down their estimate of him. They're not saying he's the Messiah. His death ends such hopes. Why are they thinking like this? It seems that they had a skewed view of what the Christ would do and be. They just had this expectation that he would be a victorious figure. There are snippets of that in the old testament that lead one to expect that he'll be a great ruling king certainly but there's much about the suffering that would come that he was the suffering servant of the servant songs in isaiah but they can't marry those things together clearly they just expect someone who will throw off the oppression of their roman rulers they want somebody who will redeem israel but what they're thinking in terms of redemption is physical redemption that we'll get our place back, that we'll have a new start as a nation, a victorious Messiah, not one you know, who dies a humiliating death on the cross, an instrument of torture that these Romans use to humiliate people. And so they're hopeless before the one who they should trust in. Jesus' death has made them doubt. They're aware of the discovery of the tomb, but none of these things stack up. And so they've revised their estimate of him. You know, they're not alone. I don't know. Have you ever tried to put something together without actually fully reading the instruction manual? They're struggling with their faith because they can't put together what Scripture has said. They, Instead of rereading the Scriptures and coming back to what had been promised about the Messiah, they in instead decide that Jesus is not the one. Look, putting things together without 
fully understanding what has been written down is uh, something I'm pretty good at. Uh, many males are, apparently. Um, IKEA flat packs, they're a great example. We just put one together in the past week. I love to rush in, put things together, and then discover halfway through that I've done it in the wrong order. But, you know, my worst example of that was way back in 2002. Uh, we had just moved in to a new house uh, in Chatswood, and we got some of those self-adhesive plastic hooks to put up a few pictures around the place. Uh, we put up a few small pictures in the house, and uh, they were looking good, we were fairly satisfied, but we had this really big Ken Duncan panograph of Victoria Falls, you know, that spectacular place on the border of Zimbabwe and Zambia. It had been given to us as a wedding present. I thought, look, we've really got to put that up too. I'd love to put that up above our bed. So, you know, I, got, I took two hooks and I, and I put it above the bed and it was perfectly straight, um, looked great. I walked away, job well done. It was just um, a small problem because two hours later there was this almighty crash in the bedroom. Thank you. This was the middle of the day and we weren't sleeping. And Victoria Falls had fallen. Uh, quite neatly, it must be said, missed the top of the bed head behind, had just gone straight down the wall and smashed onto the plaster skirting board at the bottom. Uh, the aluminium frame had buckled, the glass front had smashed and torn the big panograph photo into lots of pieces. And there it was on the ground. You know, it's at moments like this, um, when things don't pan out the way we thought they should, that we begin to doubt the product rather than our understanding. You see, up until this point, I thought that self-adhesive plastic hooks were the best thing, since sliced bread even. But now they were a hopeless product. How could this have happened? It ruined this good gift that we had. And so I'd revised my estimate of them. And as we were cleaning up this mess, uh, my wife, Christine, considered you know, the very remote possibility that I may not have read the instructions fully on the back of this pack. And it was then that we discovered you know, the uh, weight limits that were put on these hooks. And let's just say I'd comfortably exceeded it, even if I'd had 10 hooks. And... Um, in fact, halfway down the back of the instructions in bold capital letters was, do not use to hang anything above a bed. <laughs> uh, it just pays to read the instructions, doesn't it? You might become disillusioned otherwise. And this is what's happened for these disciples. I mean, they know the scriptures in theory. It's not simply that they've read about what the Messiah should do. Jesus himself had told them at least three times as recorded in the Gospels, that he was to die, to suffer and die and then to rise on the third day. But all of those things seem to have gone out of their head at that moment of Christ's death on Good Friday. And so they'd revised their estimation of him rather than going back to what was clearly written down for them. And that brings me to a second point. Point two, how does Christ resurrection bring hope well not only does it overcome the hopelessness of death but it also gives us a fulfillment of god's word it means we can entrust our lives to god's promises so point two fulfilling god's word see this is the crux of jesus response to these two disciples i mean you have try and imagine this picture yourself as one of the two disciples here you are offering your faulty assessment of jesus life and death and resurrection as he stands beside you Jesus is patiently listening to your explanation. And then finally, he responds to them. And notice from verse 25 how he does so. He says, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? 
See, Jesus is saying they didn't understand or indeed believe the scriptures. They hadn't properly read the manual on the Messiah. If they had, they would have known that this should unfold, that Jesus must suffer and die and then be raised on the third day. And that therefore Jesus had perfectly fulfilled what had been promised. This was not some great mistake. Indeed, it was exactly what the father had planned. Now, at this point, we might think, notice what Jesus does for them. He could have said straight away, look, I've heard your assessment of the situation, but look, I'm Jesus, here I am. Let's, let's move forward. Look, you've got it all wrong. He doesn't do that. He allows them to go on, not recognizing him. And he provides a really important principle for us today, an important principle for them that he obviously wants to lay before them. Notice this in verse 27. How does Jesus then speak to them? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So here are these two confused disciples and Jesus wants to walk them through the Old Testament. He wants them to see for themselves as he speaks with them how it is a perfect fulfillment of what God had promised. And what a great conversation that would have been. It'd be wonderful to be a fly on the wall, as they say at that moment, to hear Jesus himself talk about all the predictions of his life and death and resurrection in the Bible. And so it's no wonder that the two disciples remarked, notice in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Well, we're told that it's only at the very end of their encounter with Jesus after he had broken bread with them as they sat at a table, they'd forced him to not go on, have a meal with them, it's getting dark, let's sit down. And finally their eyes are open. And so ends this wonderful restoring encounter between these two confused disciples and Jesus, the risen Christ. Not before he has explained and corrected their understanding of the scriptures for them. And what's the result of this patient process that Jesus has gone through? Well, these two disciples have moved from disillusionment and doubt to renewed hope and real belief, true faith. And their response is wonderful. Not only do they acknowledge the truth of what they've heard, but they are joyous. They race back because they want to tell other people about it. They're running back to Jerusalem. You notice how they had sort of delayed Jesus, said, we've got to have this meal, it's on dusk, it's going to get dark, it's dangerous out here is the inference. But that, all that goes out the window. Now they seem to run back in the dark to Jerusalem. They've got to tell the other disciples who are there about how they've seen the risen Christ, share this joy with them. And of course, this rings true, doesn't it, as an eyewitness report. There's no blind faith in this chapter. Here are the same disciples who at the start of the chapter are rejecting the testimony of the women. No, it couldn't have happened. No way is there an empty tomb. And here they are now convinced as more and more overwhelming evidence hits them that yes, Jesus has been raised and now they run back in great joy to share with others. Well, that brings us to a final point as we apply this to ourselves. God's word and us. God's word in us. Now, what is the application as we think about this today? I want to say to you tonight, the first thing is that it shows us the importance of the Bible for belief today. And more than that, for people to have hope beyond death. 
You know, it's an understanding that the scriptures are trustworthy, that they're actually crucial for us in establishing the truth. You know, for us today who didn't see these events unfold, who weren't eyewitnesses like these first disciples, these eyewitness accounts are all the more crucial. We read through them that Jesus did die and rise from the dead. And of course, these truths are foundational to the Christian faith. Without them, there is no Christianity. In the context of this account about the resurrection, you know, if Jesus had only died, well, as the disciples on the road to Emmaus rightly said, he can't be the Christ. He's at best a dead prophet. But if he has risen, then all that's been promised about him is true. Jesus is the one then who can offer forgiveness of sins because he's overcome its penalty of death. He's the one that can therefore offer eternal life because he has life eternal in himself. But all these things cannot happen unless he's truly conquered the grave. The question, of course, immediately comes, well, how are we to be sure of these momentous events? I mean, resurrection, people coming back from the dead. I mean, this is, you know, can we believe these things? Well, Jesus, as he speaks to the disciples, would answer that question Well, the answer to being sure is to study the scriptures. It's knowing the Bible. So often we don't study it. Indeed, our society today just wants to dismiss it and throw it over their shoulder. Prove the truth of these things through God's word? Absolutely, says Jesus. Now look, the question is, do we read it? The Wall Street Journal reported a few years ago There are nearly 1,000 cookbooks uh, that are published in the United States every year, uh, many of them full-colour, glossy things that cost a fortune. And year on year, more and more are being published, and yet the stats show throughout the US that less and less are people cooking at home. More and more, they're going out to restaurants. They interviewed, as part of this article, a woman who was a portfolio manager in New York, and she said in the past three years she had bought 16 cookbooks She subscribed to two cooking magazines. But when they asked her about how much she cooked, she said, well, I haven't actually cooked a meal for four years. And it didn't turn out when I did back four years ago. It begs the question, does it? Why is she buying the books? Why subscribe? Likewise, there are more Bible translations, more study aids than ever in the history of the world today. There are now Bible apps that we can have on our phone or our iPad or whatever it might be. But for all that, people are so often reading the Bible less and less. As one person said, if all the unused Bibles in the world were dusted at once, the sun would go into eclipse. And yet, the resurrection is crucial to having hope beyond the grave. And the Bible is the means by which we can be sure, so says Jesus. Now look, hang on a minute, you might say. Can I really trust this? I mean, surely the Bible, you know, it's written by Jesus' friends. Of course, they're going to say good stuff about him. It's a circular argument. Surely you're telling me to read the thing that's written by Jesus effectively? Well, let me say two points about that. Firstly, the scriptures that Jesus was getting them to consider as he talked to them on the road is the Old Testament. The New Testament had not been written at that point. He's pointing them back to prophecies that had been written centuries before Jesus was born, pointing to him and his arrival and the life and the death and the resurrection that would follow. 
And secondly, there is much that is written outside of the Bible that corroborates what is written in God's word. Whether it's Josephus, who was the Jewish person who wrote the Roman history of the day in the first century, or Tacitus, or Pliny the Younger, or many others, they corroborate the events that surround Christ's life. Even so, you might say, look, you know, hasn't the Bible's trustworthiness been doubted over the past few years? You know, isn't there even movies these days that question it? Perhaps you think of Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, that came out in 2003. Sold 60 million copies. They're printed in 44 languages. And it questions the Bible's trustworthiness throughout. I mean, it was then made into a massive movie in 2006, which starred Tom Hanks. That raked in $750 million that year. It was number two in terms of gross income. Surely these things you know, point to doubts over the Bible. I mean, that novel claims that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, that the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, 300 years after Christ, decided whether Jesus was the Son of God or not by vote. Do we think he is? And they upgraded him from mortal to son of God through a council that was put together by the then emperor Constantine. So says Dan Brown's book. And then you say, well, how come the Bible that was written a couple of centuries before the Council of Nicaea doesn't have any trace of Jesus not being the divine son of God? Oh, well, that's because the Bible was rewritten by Constantine. He got a group of people together and they got rid of all the mortal stuff and just made him son of God so that we read what we have today. People lapped this up when that book came out. Let me say to you, these conspiracy theories have been rolled out for 2,000 years. And none of them have held water when you put them under the microscope of true historical uh, um, intent and investigation. You see, even Tom Hanks, who's not a believer, uh, said before the film's releases there was all this controversy about the film coming out. He said, look, the story we tell is loaded with all sorts of hooey and fun kind of scavenger hunt type nonsense. If you're going to take any sort of movie at face value, particularly a huge budget motion picture like this, you'd be making a very big mistake. Well, he's right, and not because Tom said it. Look, if there was any doubt ever about the accuracy of the Bible, if you can say, oh, look, how do we know that what's been handed down to us today is the same thing that was even written years ago well all of that was blown out of the water by the discovery of the dead sea scrolls in 1949 you see up until that point the only oldest copies we had of the bible was from 10th century ad a thousand years ago or thereabouts but at the dead sea scrolls they found large portions of the old testament the whole scroll of isaiah and many other portions that dated from one uh, the first and second century bc and so immediately scholars were able to compare two Bibles a millennium, 11, 1,200 years apart. And what did they find as they looked at the Bible that we have today? They found 99% agreement. In fact, the changes or differences were so minuscule as to not change the meaning of even one sentence in the Bible. I want to say to you, you can trust the Bible. God has ensured that we have it handed down his word to us. Now look, perhaps you're still not convinced. Uh, maybe you've come tonight unsure about these events that Christians hold so central to their faith. 
And maybe you think, look, if I had the time and the energy, if I could really investigate this stuff, look at Jesus' life, if I could go into the archaeology myself, look, I think I could disprove this stuff. You know, just give me uh, the resources and I could work out for myself whether this stuff has a shred of credibility to it. Well, look, if you're thinking that way, you're not alone. Uh, lots of people have for the last two millennium. Uh, a recent example is Lee Strobel. He's an American guy, was an atheist. He'd studied law and journalism. He had no time for Christian belief at all. But his life was turned on its head when his non-Christian wife suddenly became a believer. How can I argue with this thing? I can't even see, he said. And he said, well... She invited me to a church, and I heard the gospel explained in a way that I could understand. He said, to begin with, I certainly didn't believe it, but I did realize that if it were true, it would have massive implications for my life. And so I decided this. I was going to use my journalism experience. I was going to use my legal expertise, and I was going to investigate whether there was any credibility to Christianity. And so for nearly two years, he writes, I investigated science, philosophy, history, I read literature, I quizzed the experts, I studied archaeology. And on November 8th, 1981, I sat in my study and I pulled out my yellow legal pad and I started summarizing all the evidence that I had seen over those two years. And as I got to the bottom of my sheet, I found that it would take me more faith to remain an atheist than it would to become a Christian. And so I believed you know, he accepted Jesus as his saviour and then he went on to write a book about that journey to faith. It came out in 1998. It was called A Case for Christ. Well, you know, a movie's just been produced of his book. You can go and see it. It was just released April 6th. It's still available at the moment, which takes the sceptical mind of Lee Strobel as he investigates things and comes to the conclusion that Jesus really did die and rise again let me encourage you if you still have doubts go and see the movie it'll be a good insight into one person's journey but i want to encourage you to do something more than that it's always easy to hear somebody's second-hand account of what you should think about jesus or the bible i want to challenge you to read god's word for yourself take a copy of god's word and investigate it show the kind of integrity that lee strobel did and read the eyewitness accounts for yourself. Look, we've got a stack of free Bibles out there on the welcome table in the foyer. We'd love you to take one. Go away and read one of the four biographies of Christ's life. Read Mark. It's the shortest. Take you an hour and a half, 16 chapters. You can race through it and think about what it is that God has done in the sending of his son. What if you are already a Christian here tonight? Look, I want to challenge you too. I don't want your Bible to be one of the many that's collecting dust in your house. I pray that it's not. Let me encourage you to read it day by day, not just because it will continue to spur you on, to encourage you to feed your soul as you read again and again the eyewitness accounts of those who saw Jesus, who saw him die, who saw him come to life, but also because it is the way that God speaks to you. If you're going to hear God's voice, to have his guidance in your life, then you need to open his word. It's like having a relationship where you refuse to talk to the other person if you shut the Bible and don't allow God to speak into your life. 
Look, we started with the question, how does Christ's resurrection bring hope? It brings hope because it deals with the hopelessness of death. Now, the Bible wants to say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is our great enemy. It makes a mockery of anything we might achieve in this life. There's no legacy beyond your death unless there's anything beyond this life. Maybe God will bless you with 70 or 80 years. It could be far less. And the question is whether you know the person, the only one who has overcome death and who can offer you life. Life not just now, but life eternal that goes on beyond the grave. Now, Jesus came up beside these two confused people and he said, what does God's word say? Let me take you through it. Here is the one who points us back to God's word. You don't need to have seen Jesus in person. You've got the eyewitness account of his life before you in 20 copies if you like. Please read it. Be reminded daily of the one who conquered death on your behalf so that you might have a hope that's far greater than anything this life can offer you, a hope that goes on forever. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in the dark, but rather you revealed yourself clearly to us in the person of your Son, Jesus. We thank you that we do have the eyewitness records of his life and death and indeed his resurrection. Up to 500 people who witnessed him alive in the days following Easter Sunday. And what a wonderful hope it brings, not simply that he was the Christ, but for all those who would place their faith in him, that your word is trustworthy, that the promises indeed that we can have new life through faith in him hold true. Not only will he have conquered death, but he can allow us to have life that goes on eternally too. Lord, help us to see the wonderful way that you've intervened in our world through him. May we submit our lives to the one who can offer so much more. We pray it in his name. Amen.